You're listening to Meet the RIA. In this special podcast edition of the show, you'll get expert insight from some of the top registered investment advisors in the country. Here's your host, Jenna Dagenhardt, and today's special guest, Barry Ritholtz, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Barry, 2020 is finally behind us. I'm glad to say that. You call it a frustrating yet productive year, and you came up with a list of your 15 favorite big picture posts. One of them, called Upside Surprise, reflects on the seven-year anniversary of Ritholtz Wealth Management. You talk about needing a new PC for two years when you were first getting started, which I think really illustrates how far you've come and also probably resonates with a lot of advisors about their beginnings. Now you have a data scientist and I would guess a new computer as well. How have things changed since you launched and what was it like launching your own firm? Yeah, so so it's funny because everybody brings a different set of skills to the table. Mm-hmm. I launched with three partners and we were all very, uh, we had some overlapping skills, but mostly they were very complementary. And you really spend the first year in a new firm, just getting your legs underneath you and figuring out how to do the silly day-to-day stuff, payroll and healthcare and accounting and bank accounts. And, you know, every small business has to become good, not only at what their specialty is, but at the business of running a small business. It's it's quite the challenge. Uh, Once we got past that first year and started delegating things to, we would hire people who had skills that we didn't. Eventually, uh, one of the people we hired was a CFO. We hired a full-time trader. We hired all sorts of different people to take stuff off of the founding partner's uh, responsibility, things just, growth just took off like a rocket from there. And you describe your firm's strategy as, quote, giving employees clear goals and targets as to what their responsibilities are and the tools that they need to accomplish those goals. Why do you think this approach has worked so well? Well, you left out the last part, which is, and then getting the hell out of their way, um, which I think a lot (laughs) of companies uh, have a hard time embracing. So, so you have to, you really have to make it clear. This is the objective where we want to get to. He, here's our, here's our goal. Here are the tools you need to get there. And then once you delegate that that responsibility to somebody, don't micromanage them. Don't you know ride them. Give them the room and a, a, a specific reasonable date by which you want things accomplished. And you'd be amazed at how people rise to the occasion. And and we've been really fortunate. Um, lots of our employees have, have just continually surprised us with their innovation and their creativity. And that's allowed the firm uh, to get better and better at what it does. Why do you think it's so difficult, though, for so many people to actually get out of the way? It's not always easy. Well, for a lot of RIAs, they were the jack of all trades most of their career. They were the rainmaker, the portfolio manager, the the they they were also the trader, the marketer, the administrator, the compliance person, and so when you're used to having final say and control over all those things, it's a little bit of a challenge to let that go to to delegate. We came into into this company with me. I was never a broker. I mean, I had a Series 7. I was never an advisor. I had a Series 63. I always worked as a either a, a strategist or a trader or a researcher. So it was very easy for me to say, 
to Chris Venn, hey, you know more about how to set up the process of onboarding clients and making sure they get everything they need. You do that. Nobody wants me to do that. I have I have no skill set in that. And you know, it, it it once you start to do it and you start to realize the enormous advantages of an ensemble practice where everybody focuses on what they do best and they allow other people with specialties to do that. So you're not saddled with that. You're not burned with it. It's a, it's just a huge advantage. Another one of your top posts is about the vaccine, which I know is on a lot of people's minds. You point to a June 2021 reopening and several more months of lockdown, potentially challenging the reader to make the most of this time and come up with goals. Your personal goals list includes everything from exercising to reading to becoming a better chef. What are some ways that advisors can grow outside of work that will ultimately make them better advisors? So, so that post was kind of odd because when we, when we were just getting the vaccine approval, I looked at the calendar and I looked at the best estimates for when there would be widespread distribution. I was shocked to see we were literally at the exact halfway point that, that exact day. So, Hey, you know, you got to make, I stopped and I said, what did I accomplish over the past eight months? And it was less than I would have hoped. What am I want to accomplish over the next eight months? And so, so I made a short list. For, for advisors, there's a lot of different things they have to do. They have to figure out where they want to specialize, where they want to develop a unique, specific skill set. For, for some people, we have people in my office who have a specialty in working with people who are going through divorce, uh, both the husband and the wife. Huge financial changes in that sort of thing. And there's a whole lot of, of different things that come out of that from a financial planning perspective. And so developing that expertise, and I know that there are a number of additional qualifications CFPs can get related to that, that that's just an example. There, there are some people who develop an expertise working on the tax side or the estate side or um, donor um, funds where, where people are actually uh, funding accounts and using them, using appreciated stock to donate to uh, uh, their favorite philanthropy. There are all sorts of rules about that and all sorts of um, really aggressive uh, legal tax deductions. You could, you could donate up to 30% of your gross adjusted income. And if you exceed it, it carries forward for five years. So the specific area you choose to focus in doesn't matter so much as pick something that you're interested in that clients will find useful and will help grow your brand and your business. For me, it's always been my interest in behavioral finance and the cognitive errors we all make that undercut ourselves as investors. Um, it just started as an interest 20, almost 25 years ago. And I've gone down that rabbit hole so deep that everything we do has a behavioral component. That was just one way of taking an interest and turning it into a skill set that worked um, for the, uh, the RIA, for the firm. And I won't ask you for your outlook, but any behavioral finances uh, predictions for 2021? So you, I always tell people, you can ask me for my outlook, and I'm very happy to share it. I have no idea what the hell's going to happen. And that's fairly honest and true. When people tell you, here's the craziest behavioral data point having to do with predictions. 
if you ask two people on television what where they think the market will be in a year, and one person is very, very specific and says, Dow, 35,743. And the second person says, I have no idea. The future is inherently unknown and unknowable. We could look at the average return of markets about 8%. Uh, but we're at the, uh, you know, we're in the sixth or seventh inning of a, a long bull market. Who knows? I have no idea. The reader loves that first specific forecast, even though it's made up and very likely to be wrong. And they hate the ambiguity of the future is inherently unknowable. But between those two forecasts, admitting that you have no idea what's going to happen in the future and making investments in a robust portfolio that can withstand no matter what happens is going to be the more successful strategy. Uh, it just requires a little humility to admit we have no idea what's going to happen. And oftentimes our behaviors and emotions get in the way of that. Well, especially, you know, there's this tendency amongst investors to make a forecast and then marry their portfolio to that forecast. And not when it's pretty clear it's not going their way, that's different things are occurring, rather than admit error and change things, they double down. And and it, it's such a common foible. Um, the famed uh, market analyst, Ned Davis, who created Ned Davis Research, highly regarded um, technical and quantitative uh, firm, research firm, his first book was called um, uh, Being Right or Making Money. And he asked the question, which do you want to be? Do you want to be right about a particular forecast or would you rather make money? And and that's just so true for investors. You can't think about uh, a forecast and have it impact how you're actually managing your assets. You really have to focus on putting together a robust portfolio that can withstand anything that happens that you, you, you need to be able to um, sleep at night. The, the old joke is the optimal portfolio isn't the one with the highest returns. It's the one that the investor can live with. And that's very true. And sticking with markets here, let's talk about your post, why markets don't seem to care if the economy stinks, something that advisors get a lot of questions about. So why do so many people believe that the stock market has decoupled from reality? So yeah, there's two issues with that. The first issue is, when was the stock market ever tied to the economy? I know there's a sort of loose correlation between corporate profits and the state of the economy, and people extrapolate that. Uh, but during the pandemic and during the lockdown, it could not possibly have been more in your face that the economy you deal with every day and the stock market over here are two totally different things. And, and I'll give you a quick couple of examples. So in your day-to-day -day economic experience, you get in your car, you go for a ride, you see the supermarket, you go to the dry cleaner, some of the local restaurants, maybe they're closed. Uh, you see some retailers not doing well. Some of those are boarded up. You go to the gas station, gas is really cheap. And, and you go about your day and, and your experience has been, wow, the economy is really in the crapper. And, and then you look at the market anytime in, in mid 2020 and beyond, and everything is screaming higher. And when we look at the stock market, especially broad indexes like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ QQQs and NASDAQ 100, they're market cap weighted, meaning the bigger companies 
uh, are going to have a bigger influence on the index. So what were the big winners last year? Apple and Amazon and Microsoft and Netflix and go down the list. All of the work from home stocks, including Microsoft, Am um, Apple, Zoom, they did really well. All of the uh, home food delivery places from Amazon uh, to Walmart to Target to Home Depot they, they and, and other home repair and improve where you live places. Lowe's, they did really well. And as you look at the other end of the index, you look at the worst performing sectors, there are things like travel and hotel and food service and retail. And you go through the whole list of these. You could take the bottom 50 industry groups and just wipe them off the S&P 500, and it's a mere 6%. 6%. It, it, it's almost nothing. Wow. When, on the other hand, you take just the biggest industry group, the information technology, it's 27%. And so the the difference between the economy and the stock market is the economy is what you experience every day. The stock market is driven by a handful of companies and the bulk of your day-to-day -day life is just a teeny tiny market cap within the overall indices. And so it creates this very different experience depending where you're looking if you're looking at the local economy not doing so great you're looking at the the broad uh, look at netflix and and facebook as examples more than half of their revenue and a lot of their future growth is coming from overseas that for most of 2020 was doing much better than the united states was in terms of managing the pandemic and reopening their economy and finally revisiting our conversation around goals I bet a lot of people are going into 2021 thinking, how can I be smarter? One way to do that is sharpening your vocabulary. So why don't you share your list of the 10 most useless phrases in finance? I found that very interesting because sometimes what we don't say is just as important as what we do say. So I did this uh, a year ago um, in 2019. I just went on Twitter and, and asked people, what's your most your least favorite phrases in finance. And I was overwhelmed. I got just a giant run of responses that were great. So a year went by and I, I did the same thing. I went on Twitter and said, hey, what, what are your most annoying financial cliches? And they completely overwhelmed me with a whole bunch of suggestions. I had my list. I, I kind of mixed and matched some from my list, some from theirs. Uh, a, a few that, that were real standouts. Um, don't get complacent was one that I really found amusing because what what sort of advice is that? Don't get complacent. Are you telling me to sell? Are you telling me not to sell? What what does that mean? It, it has no that it, it's absolutely the least actionable advice ever given. Don't don't. It's one thing to say don't be smug or have uncritical satisfaction with one's achievement, but still, how how do you express that as a trade? I, I couldn't figure that out. So that was one that really um, annoyed me. The the other one, um, and I I put together a longer list, but the next one was profit taking, which we hear every time anything runs up in price and then just has a temporary uh, uh, setback. It's always offered as an as a conclusion without any evidence or or explanation, and um, I, I just find profit taking to be really annoying. 
Well, Barry, always great to have you. Thank you so much for sharing some of your favorite posts from your least favorite year. I think it was uh, a lot of people's least favorite year. To say the least. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Meet the RIA. Visit AssetTV.com for more financial news and information, and be sure to check out our other episodes of the Meet the RIA podcast.